Pod. 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 Welcome back to another episode of Say Who Say Pod. He's Danny O'Neill. I'm Christian Capel, and I woke up in my own bed this morning. Danny, how about that? For the first time in 13 nights, it was a it was a long trip, long couple weeks. Well, you went from New Orleans, drove over to Houston, ditched your rental car in Houston, descended upon the Metroplex, and then eventually, after after a fortnight, you returned. That's true. Uh, feels good to be home. Obviously, uh, it was a long season, the longest season in Washington Huskies history. In fact, it ended uh, not the way they wanted with a 34-13 to 13 loss, obviously, to number one Michigan in the national championship game. Um, how, how did that hit you, Danny? What was your, your kind of initial reaction once it ended? Well, if we went through the time log of the game, the first quarter, I was aghast and really at the... I was worried that it was going to be embarrassing. And the image that I had was people are going to feel about Washington the same way they felt about TCU last year. And I thought about how I was already getting mad at the reaction some people would have about that was a waste of time or that was absolutely not worth it. That is, if that final result was going to overshadow the the season that Washington had had. And my feeling, which I I, I do like deeply hold on to, is that I wouldn't trade the previous 14 weeks. I don't, I don't care if they lost to a hundred to nine, I would not have traded or wanted anything different to have happened in the previous 14 games. Um, that, that final result. And I've seen Jim Harbaugh teams for years be able to create gaps in the run game that are unaccounted for and make defenses look bad. That is something that happened at Stanford. And I can remember after a specific game when Sark was the coach and Bud Withers overheard Jim Harbaugh telling his Uh, team that that's the highest paid staff in the entire conference and you just kicked their ass. And that being the truth, I've seen that happen enough that that was my fear that we were going to see a really ugly lopsided score. And then Washington's defense dug in its heels and did something that I am so impressed and grateful for because for seven straight possessions, they basically didn't. The only field goal they gave up was the result of a turnover. They gave Washington a chance. And then unfortunately the offense, which has been so good and was so great in new Orleans kind of looked like the offense we saw for a little bit of the middle of the season. And I don't want to take anything away from Michigan's defense, which was really good. But I felt like Washington had its chances. It didn't have any breaks go its way. And that that was about as as that was about as bad a series of breaks as Washington could have reasonably encountered. And the result was a loss that wasn't as lopsided as the final score made it seem, but was pretty dispiriting. And. I'm just so happy for how that team played and grateful for everything that they did that I don't want there to be any sour aftertaste from what happened in that game. Cause I'm really, I loved cheering for this team, man. And it was a tough way for it to end, but I think that they should be very, very proud of the way they played. It's a strange thing because it, it, it never really felt like Washington was going to win that game. 
Um, yet they possessed the ball multiple times in the fourth quarter, trailing by seven points with a chance to tie. Yeah. And, and you know, just... there, there are still frames from that broadcast you could take that show, you know, Washington running a play on first down with the score, Michigan 20, Washington 13, and, you know, 10 some minutes left in the fourth quarter. And down the road, you could come across one of those still frames and think, wow, what a, what a national championship game, right? What a, if you told any Husky fan, you're going to be within one score in the, with the ball in the fourth quarter, you just said, Hey, great. That's, that's exact. That's what this team's all about. Usually it's Washington finding a way to fritter away a, a lead late in the game before hanging on and, and winning the game. But, you know, if, if, you know, you'd said before, even before the game, before the season, at any point in the season, this team's going to be in the national championship game, trailing by seven points with the ball in the fourth quarter, you, you would have loved that, that chance. Right. But they just, Michigan's defense was so good and so yeah. consistent. And there really were was was there one bust the the miss to Odunze on fourth and seven we'd say that was probably a busted coverage for sure. Um, they they're just they're so disciplined they're gonna make you make plays they're 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 not you're not gonna get them you're not gonna fool them a lot you're not gonna get them out of alignment. Um, and, and yet yeah like there were several opportunities for Washington in this game to make it different if Penix hits Odunze on their first drive in the end zone. Right. That was a miss. Um, I didn't I wouldn't have highlighted this in the moment as one of the really big missed opportunities. But I saw like Jeff Schwartz posted the all 22 of the screen they were setting up to Jalen McMillan where he tripped over yes. the D end. Yes. Uh, the D end got got way upfield. That was a touchdown. Yes, I mean, if was. he clears him and, and the, the pass leads him the right way. They had it set up. There's nobody out there for Michigan. Um, and he had a blocker. You know, he had a blocker. and yeah. There was no one on that side of the field. The uh, the holding call on Roger Rosengarten, you know, I, not the worst. I don't think that was like the most egregious penalty, but I think in this game where there were no other holding calls, it was maybe I could see how people would be like, hmm, like that's the one you're going to call. You know, I can um, I can see how the official called that because of how it looked. It wasn't it, it just it wasn't it wasn't a hold. The mechanics of it, the hold isn't the reason that dude fell. And that's why they they called it, because they thought he did also. um that that ESPN official analyst is a tool. Like I don't know if you've watched the replay of it, but he comes out. He's like, "Yeah, you hold him and pushed him down with his offhand." Like it's not my first objection to that dude. That dude sucks. <laughs> Bill so, Lemonier or whatever the hell his name is. Uh, there, there were a lot of chances to make it. Yes, a a different. I mean, the miss to Odunze, which o, it's funny. Like Odunze said, it was his fault. Penix said it was his fault. Um. I there were there was some analysis in real time. I think Mike Sanford um, had tweeted that, like, regardless of how much open space the receiver has there, the quarterback thinks he's running a corner route. He should have just finished his corner route. It would have been a huge gain regardless. Um, you could see him putting his hand up. Obviously, he's trying to indicate, "Hey, I'm wide open. Throw it here." Um, miscommunication. I mean, that was that was big. It just, I my sense watching it was that. This game probably felt for Washington the way that a lot of Washington games felt for Washington's opponents this season, where there oh, were that just... they were they're vulnerable and they're right there and it's right there for the taking and they just couldn't quite get over the hump in the second half. Yeah, where it's just oh, if this this hadn't happened or this hadn't mm -hmm. happened or this, you know, 
Miss Oregon misses a field goal. Stanford drops a pass on fourth and two. Yep. ASU throws a pick six instead of just kicking a field goal. And and they get a bad, right, a bad picked up flag on the pass interference in that game that should have been PI against UW in the end zone. And um, it just kind of felt maybe like a little bit of karmic comeuppance that like, hey, you you caught enough breaks this year. And of course, they made a lot of their own breaks, too. This was a, a team that made a lot of plays when when they needed to to, to help them win games. But it just kind of seemed like, I mean, Odunze said afterward, if it wasn't one thing, it was another. It just seemed like yes. they couldn't quite get on the same page. And then, you know, Dylan Johnson being, what, 40%? I mean, maybe not, yeah. not anywhere near health. You know, he comes off the field after the first play, which was a six-yard gain. Um, to actually wound up being like one of their better runs from scrimmage in this game. And you're thinking, oh, wow, you know, he we know he's playing hurt, playing through the foot, the knee. He must have just, you know, it, it had hurt bad enough on one play. That, that's how banged up he is. But no, it was a high ankle sprain, brand new injury. So throw that in there. And he played through it still. But I mean, you could just tell if he had to move laterally at all, it wasn't happening. The play wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't going to be able to run through tackles. He even, you know, he kind of put a, a lot of the offensive struggles on himself afterward, which probably isn't fair. But, you know, he said, I just felt like I I couldn't do what I normally do. And and it hurt the team. And, it, you know, he couldn't get the hard yards. So, um, you know, the the key and really to, to stopping any offense, like you look at why Washington was able to be so successful under Pete Kwiatkowski in the Chris Peterson era. They had really good D linemen and they got home. They got pressure yes. to the quarterback with four guys a lot. Right? Look at all the Apple Cups they won because they were able to do that. So I think, you know, Michigan had an awesome D line. They, they clearly had a better plan or at least executed better than Texas did. They gave Penix way more trouble than Texas did. And yeah, that gummed things up. It made it really hard for Washington. It made him timid. It made him, I think, call the game offensively on their heels. A lot of screens, a lot of short passes. Um, it was like they knew they couldn't protect Penix the way they wanted to. Quarterbacks will tell you that the one thing that you absolutely cannot sort of counterpunch against, that you cannot correct for, is pressure straight up the gut. And it was the one thing that used to, the one way to really disrupt Peyton Manning in his prime was if you could get pressure up the middle. Because when you can do that, there's nowhere for the quarterback to, to go. You can't. You can't account for that fast enough to be able to continue working. And 78 is a monster like that. dude. That was, I think he's the best defensive lineman that Washington faced this year. Like he was an absolute monster and 55 was really, really good too. And yeah, I, I think what you said, they pointed out how few shots downfield were taken and that was not a reflection of the coverage. The, the lack of downfield shots was because Washington knew it needed to get the ball out quick because be, because Penix wasn't going to have time to throw downfield and look credit credit to their defense like that was that that was an incredible that was an incredible performance by their front four one of Michigan's defensive linemen has a name that is a complete sentence that describes his abilities on the football field damn <laughs> good. <laughs> what can you I, say yeah Being good yeah it was it, it it was well and their their corners hit their linebackers hit it's a physical defense um i did feel that washington was able to move the ball against them at times but by the time it got to the second half 
there was nothing that Washington was doing that made you think that they were going to be able to get into the end zone. You hoped that they would find some sort of rhythm that they'd had previously or snap into place, but with Dylan Johnson's injury and then when it became clear that Michael Penix was banged up too. And then at the end where it was, it was tough to watch him play because he was so clearly hurt. It was, it was that I felt, I, I felt bad for them because with the whole country watching, they didn't get to see how really great that offense has been at different points. And the contrast with how Penix had looked in the sugar bowl was, was really striking. I thought going into halftime, I kind of felt like, man, I, I bet Michigan feels like it really screwed this second quarter up. Uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah. You're up 14-3 with Blake Corum having just ripped off a 59-yard run. Yes. You're deep in their territory. You are just taking it to them, especially in the trenches on both sides of the ball. You're blowing open holes. They're they're grasping at ghosts trying to tackle your guys. You're you've asserted your will defensively. They're, they're clearly already not playing the way they want to offensively. You got a chance to just bust this thing open. And like you said, go Georgia TCU on them. And that was when Washington's defense began. It's really incredible run of play. I mean, throughout this, the second and third and even early in the fourth quarter, they bow up, they force a, a, a field goal there, which at that point felt like a win. They're able to, you know, they, they force another punt. They get the touchdown before halftime to cut it to one score. They know they're getting it out of the locker room. I bet Washington went into the halftime locker room feeling great. I mean, just thinking like, hey, got that early hole. The defense finally did its job. You you, you got a chance to tie the game and, and away you go. Um, and, and even Michigan's field goal after Penix throws the interception on the first play of the third quarter, which was another huge play and, and a turning point. Even that was a victory for Washington's defense, right? They took over goal. deep in their territory, and they they did what they could. So um, I I was ready after the first quarter to to kind of call this like complete domination by Michigan yep. on both sides of the ball. It didn't end up being that. Um, nope. You you saw Washington make adjustments in the running game. JJ McCarthy, you know, hit a couple big passes. He had a big scramble on third down. That was maybe an overlooked uh, big play where they they had him deep in their territory and maybe could have flipped the field position there. But you know, Michigan's passing game was was not what won this game. Um, and its running game, you know, I thought Washington adjusted to pretty well throughout most of the game. Even the two scores in the fourth quarter, you can't hold up forever. Of course, one of them came after an interception return to the eight yard line. That that changes things. Um, that's that's not really going to be on the defense. But when your offense isn't moving the ball, like we talked about this a lot in 2021, right? Defense isn't played in a vacuum. They weren't going to be able to hold up forever. I, I thought this was a pretty, all things considered, a pretty admirable effort by Washington's defense to keep him in the game. They corrected after what was three just flush on the chin uppercuts in the first quarter. And like I said, I Jim Harbaugh has has made a living and built his well-earned reputation as someone who turns around programs in large part because of how they build their run games and, and they created gaps and I don't want to take anything away, but Washington, Washington got caught and got blown out of the ball. And then they gathered themselves and they really seven straight possessions where the only points they allowed were that field goal off of the turnover to start the second. 
it's incredible. You couldn't have asked for any better. And I would agree with you. They didn't get blown out. This wasn't TCU last year. Washington gave itself a chance to win. And it just, its offense, its offense wasn't capable of following through on that, which is not something that was standard for them this year. One of my friends uh, pointed out kind of the question of, hey, how, how many games out of 10 does Washington win that? And in that first quarter, I worried that the answer was going to be zero. Like That's what I was, was just like. It's a different. And no, I, I look out of it. They, they win at least three and maybe four. They're, I, I do think Michigan was the better team. I, I do believe that. I also believe in this game, Washington had a lot of things that just it got. It didn't get breaks in that game. The, the missed throw to Odunze, the injuries to Johnson and later to Penix, the hold against Rosengarten. It, there were a number the the uncalled hold against Odunze on the outside. They 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 didn't get a break, and that doesn't mean that they they were that Michigan was fortunate or anything. But Washington, that was about as badly as things could go for Washington, and it still had opportunities to tie the game in the second half. Yeah, I, I think it. What probably, if you're looking for the most disappointing takeaways from a Washington perspective. It's that they made it to the national championship game and didn't really play their game there. Yes. Um, that especially and really mostly offensively that this really dynamic passing offense and, and, you know, with, with a really great running back who put up over 1100 yards this year, um, weapons all over the field, big arm quarterback, not afraid to make deep throws. And I mean, in, in fact, deep throws are a huge part of, of their offense and, you know, can fit it into tight windows and is coming off of maybe the best game ever played by a quarterback at his school um, to go into that game, have no running game whatsoever because one Dylan Johnson is banged up. And I think this also goes back to Cam Davis's injury. The fact that even like a, a 40%, if that Dylan Johnson is such a good option that he's still worth putting on the field for 30 plus snaps and handing the ball to 11 times rather than rely on either Will Nixon or Tybo Rogers for, for extended duty or anybody else. And it just goes to show really how fortunate they were to, to get through this year with Dylan Johnson as banged up as he was and as important as he was to their offense throughout the season. So if you've got Cam Davis, you know, you've got that one, two punch in some order, you, you, you've got two guys, two veterans, you really, really feel good about. And, and maybe that changes the picture a little bit, but that's football. It's, that's just how it goes. Um, and, and so no running game, very timid passing game. Right. I mean, and, and Michigan had a lot to do with that, getting as much pressure as they did. Penix is retreating. He's, not able to throw to his first read. They're not taking shots downfield. I mean, it just seemed like all season they would come to the line pre-snap. They'd move guys around. They'd get the look they want and they'd find somebody wide open. And, you know, I think they were, they were able to scheme up a couple screens that, that got some yardage accomplished. I mean, Jack Westover popped open a couple times. They hit a middle screen to Odunze where he, he got out in front of the offensive line that, that, that didn't quite line up right, but still wound up being a first down. Um, th there, there were some moments they were brief where it looked like they were getting a little bit of rhythm and hit, hit him with some tempo. Um, but it just did not look like Washington's offense. You know, it wasn't a matter of, Oh, they got guys running wide open and panics is just overthrowing, you know, overthrowing Odunze. They're, they they get him open on four deep shots and just don't hit him. Or um, 
you know, there's drop passes or fumbles or something like that. I mean, that, that'd be, that'd be one thing, but to just, to, for them to just not be able to even approach the game offensively the way that you know they want to week in and week out, I think that's probably, it was the most surprising aspect of the game. And if you're Washington, probably the most disappointing thing, honestly. Yeah. It would have been, it would have been great to see. And especially because Roma Dunze is a special player, man. And we didn't, we didn't fully get to see that in the game, but that's how it goes sometimes. Um, there are a lot of really, really incredible things that happened over the course of the year. And the one thing I will say is that the idea that Washington couldn't play big boy football, which is, I think that was the phrase that Booger McFarland used. That's pretty silly, right? Like that's the, the idea that Washington was doing something. Washington, Washington competed against a really good Michigan team and they took Michigan's best shot in the first quarter and they gathered and they rallied and they they put themselves in position to have chances to to tie that game in the second half they're fully capable of playing big big boy football this wasn't a case of they were they were fighting outside their weight class which is really how i felt in 2016 when they played alabama in the peach bowl this wasn't this 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 wasn't that sort of game like that washington team and and it bothers me it did bother me when I saw the reaction from people being that, oh, this is sort of a, a, a man against boys type moment because after the first after that first quarter, that really you didn't watch the game if that's if that's the conclusion you came to that these were two different caliber of teams because Washington had absolutely deserved to be in that game and was was in that game in a way that some people aren't giving them credit for. Yeah. I mean, their offensive line did get dominated. Um, so I think that, you know, yep. I could totally see how if you're Michigan and your offensive line won the Joe Moore award, each of the previous two seasons, and then you go up against Washington and, and dominate the way you did coming away thinking like, Oh, okay. That's the Joe Moore award winner. And I did, I actually did see a couple of Michigan players kind of talking about that. And Hey, that's I think that's legit. Like they earned that right. They know what their O line looks like, and and they had their kind of had their way with Washington's offensive line. So, um, but yeah, I mean, I think Texas's defensive line is pretty good. Yeah, you know, they got it is got a couple of pretty good players, and and Texas, you know, they they got through a fair number of times. Is what what part of what made Penix's performance in that game so impressive was that he navigated the pocket so well and that even when they did have a rusher get through or an interior D lineman get through he was very very calmly and effectively able to kind of sidestep it and still find a receiver downfield Michigan's secondary is a lot better than Texas's so that helped out a lot um we've said we've talked about this before I I do believe sacks are a quarterback stat that 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 sacks a quarterback that takes a lot of sacks usually indicates that the quarterback holds onto the ball more so than they just have terrible protection up front. And, but Michigan pushed that past, past the manageable point. And even then sacks didn't really tell you the beating or the, the pressure that, that Michael Penix was under. He was able, it affected him and he was, he was able to, and some of it was from his own ability to duck and reset and the way he played he was able to remain effective against pressure against Texas in a way that he wasn't against Michigan. 
there have been certain games and certain seasons um, throughout Washington's history that kind of served as, you know, really lesson learning moments. The probably most famous one being the 1986 Sun Bowl against Alabama, where mm-hmm. Washington gets gets beaten soundly. And the takeaway for Don James and his staff was that we're not fast enough. We need that more speed. The, the game has changed. You need to get faster. You need to get more guys who can run. And that that was the genesis for their 1988 recruiting class that supplied so many of their great players on the 1991 team and so on and so forth. Um, do you think this is that kind of game in, in any way? Because I like it's tempting to say, well, they're down seven in the fourth quarter with a chance to, you know, and they all these breaks went against them. They just didn't play well offensively. Um, did Michigan, especially going to the same conference as them, joining the Big Ten, did Michigan show Washington anything to send the message that, okay, if you want to compete with this program and other programs like it for the foreseeable future, you need to change something. You need to um, adjust your recruiting philosophy. You need to adjust your personnel philosophy. You need to adjust something schematically because the way that Washington played in 2023 will not work against teams like Michigan going forward. They need to get bigger in the middle of both lines. And and maybe bigger isn't the right word on defensive line, but they need to have more depth in the middle of their defensive line and they need to get bigger in the bigger and stronger in the middle of their offensive line. Like that, that, that would be my answer because typically, and people will, the, the edges are where your better athletes play tackles and ends offensive tackles and, and, and defensive ends. And they're the more highly valued positions in the NFL, but the, the size and and the strength that you need in the middle of the line. If there was if there was an area that I would say that Washington needs to improve on, and and maybe, but I thought I thought Washington's middle linebackers. I thought they really improved as the game went along. And I'm I'm not going to come out of that that game saying that hey, but yeah, like could you use like a real a real thumper in the middle of as 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 a middle linebacker? Yeah, you could. But if the the biggest thing to me was the the depth at defensive tackle and then the strength at, at center and, and center and guards up the middle of it. And that's not a critic. I think Parker Brailsford is a stud. He's also a smaller guy. He's also a redshirt freshman. So to say that like I, he's going to get bigger and stronger, Parker Brailsford is going to be an absolute rock for that offensive line going forward. Yeah. Like uh, the fact they won the Joe Moore award makes it hard for me to really focus on like, Okay, this just proves that the way they're the way they're going about O line play or recruitment or development is is all wrong and needs to change. Like I, you know, I would agree they they need to be stouter up the middle. And like like you mentioned, I don't know that it's a straight size thing, right? Nate Kaleppo and Julius Bulo are are really big dudes. I mean, they they're tackle size basically playing guard. Um, but the point about the interior D line, I mean, and that that's. It's not rocket science, right? Um, or rocket surgery or brain science. Um, it, that's the key to everything. Like, I remember you know, Brock Heward has told this story a few different times that when Chris Peterson first took the job at Washington and, and he was talking to him about like, what is it going to take to get them back to competing on the national level year in, year out? And he was like, it's going to come down to how well we can recruit big dudes to play D tackle. Like that's the the big guy in it and on both sides of the line, but it's a lot harder to find them on the West coast, especially on the, on the defensive side. I know that's a point I, I come back to a lot, but um, just like, look at what 
Michigan had on that mm-hmm. side and had just how hard it made everything for Washington offensively. Like they, they, they forced them to play a different style of football than the style of football they used to win 14 consecutive games this year and, you know, 21 consecutive games going back to last year. They just beat Texas doing whatever they wanted offensively, more or less. So they didn't run the ball that well, but, you know, they'd rather throw it anyway when push comes to shove. So, um, yeah, I, I, that's no secret. I don't think this game sent that message in any sort of meaningful way. They're also going to see offenses that are way more dynamic and better than what they saw against Michigan on Monday, right? I mean, that was yes. So that's but that's an interesting point because that was one of the things that I thought about as well, which is they are going to the Big Ten. So I, Big Ten offenses aren't that great. I think no, that, that's, that's going that that's going to be one of the things of. And you you watch that. J.J. McCarthy didn't have a good game. He had a really important scramble. But when Washington put them in positions where he had to make a play, that's the reason they had the chance. And so I, I do feel that for, as they go to the, to the Big Ten, and I think Oregon's going to find this as well, that you don't necessarily... <laughs> any size disadvantage and size is the, is the wrong word, but that sort of that interior strength, that stoutness in the middle, any disadvantage that you're at, you're also going to be accustomed to having scored more points than big 10 teams are used to. So I, I don't know. Um, Big 10 offense. I mean, what Michigan ran the ball 32 straight times against Penn state. That's ridiculous. And that's a reflection of that. Michigan didn't have to do all that much on offense to be able to beat them. Yeah. Uh, I pointed this out and, you know, there are very, very different circumstances, obviously. Um, But Michigan beat them by the same margin on Monday as they did in 2021. And (laughs) they they really did it playing exactly the same way. Like um, I'm blanking on the name of their quarterback in that game. It wasn't McCarthy. It was the last guy. I I think he was four for 13 in that game. I remember right. So yeah, they, and you look at JJ McCarthy's um, game log from this year. Like he's had some games that were similar to that in terms of attempts. Like they, they're more than happy just lining up and running the ball almost all the time. Um, I I thought that several pass attempts they made in that game were, were an absolute gift to Washington. There were, a couple situations. I mean, that fourth and two where they threw the ball third and four where they threw the ball where I'm like, just run it, run it twice here. What are you doing? So fourth and four, that, fourth that, and four where they threw the ball. Yeah. Yeah. Just, <laughs> I, it, it was, and, and you kind of felt that way about um, Washington's defense in 2021 and where, where they, they faced some teams that were great running the ball. And every time the opponent threw it, you're kind of thinking, what are they doing? Could they, is they not, are they just not, they, they just can't tolerate running the ball every single time. Cause that's clearly the best way to move it on this defense. So I think, you know, Washington also stepped up and plugged some holes there too, but um, how do you, and, and it's difficult to compare across eras, right? Because if this is, well, this, this would have been the matchup anyway, even in the, even in in olden times, because it's it's oh wait against Big Ten. Are, are are you are you sure? Maybe maybe the college the four team college football playoff didn't revolutionize or change like that. Things would have come out okay under the old antiquated bowl system. 
How should this 2023 Washington team be regarded among the all-time greats in Washington's history? Oh, it's... What's the second best team in Washington history? What do we consider that to be? 1984. So I would say that this is, you had the 83, that's the Orange Bowl victor. Is Do they beat Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl in 84? Or is that the year before that? The 84 season, yeah. The 84 season, 85 Orange Bowl. Okay, so it's a notch below that. That was the team a lost a game too. Yes, it did. But ah, it's so hard to say. The thing is, like, because now you have to do it twice. Yeah, you got to win two of those games. So is 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 the 1984 team beating Oklahoma in the Orange Bowl more impressive than this team beating Texas in the Sugar Bowl? Because this team accomplished that while also going undefeated, undefeated. Yeah. up until that point and having to beat the best team in its own league twice. Yeah, you know what, man? The two wins over Oregon. It's the, it's the second best Washington team in history. I love, and the, the 2001 team will always have, or the 2000 team will always have a special place in my heart because of Tuiasa Sopo and the injury to Curtis Williams that year. But this team, I, I mean, I watched both of those as, a, as an adult. This was a better team. And they went undefeated, and they beat Oregon twice. So it's clearly, yeah, yeah, I'm going to say it's the second-best team in school history. Can we proclaim them a national champion? <laughs> Was it 1960 when they did that? Is that maybe, is it, maybe. Maybe is the, the school can in forty-seven years. The night is it? The, it's 1960, right? That's the weird, the weird one that nobody really believes, but sometimes it is, yeah. gets mentioned. Yeah, they're better than the 1960 teams. Hope they claimed one that year. The the only hesitation, <laughs> the only hesitation that I have about pumping them above the '84 team is that there is a legitimate, strong argument to be made that Washington should have won the national championship that year. There is. There is. And and there's you can't make that argument with this team, right? Like you you just can't. Like you you can't. The '84 team you you can you can actually, and I think be right because I think they were. The idea that BYU won the national title that year is is a joke. Um, with they play in the Holiday Bowl, like that's that's yeah. lame. But against Michigan, by the way. But also, man, they beat Oregon twice. <laughs> the fact that they beat Oregon while they were nine-point underdogs after having beaten them in the regular season is so freaking awesome. Like That's so, really... <laughs> if, and, if then, we were to, and then won the Sugar Bowl in the way they did? Yeah, I'm going to say second best. I'm going to say second best. If we were to 1984 FI this season, <laughs> the... Uh, the Huskies would have been 11 and 0 after the Apple Cup going into a Rose Bowl game against an also 11 and 0 Michigan team that would have functioned as a national championship game. Yes it would have. Like if in 1984 11 and 0 Washington met 11 and 0 Michigan in the Rose Bowl it would have been a de facto title game. Um yeah. they were the only two undefeated teams 
in this yes. scenario. Like it would have been perfect, right? It would have been the most, one of the most anticipated Rose Bowls of all time. Um, and Michigan would have beaten them by three scores. And you would have ended that season saying Michigan's, you know, clear, unanimous, outright, undisputed national champion. Um, and Washington would have wound up ranked still number two, probably. Um, so is that 11 and one with, a loss in your last game to the national champion better or worse than 1984 11 and one with a victory in a last major bowl game over a, a blue blood team that a lot of people probably would have voted number one. If, if, if Oklahoma had won the 84 under that scenario, the 84 season is better. You win your final game. You have an argument that a well, a well-regarded, well-regarded argument that you are actually the best team in the league and you get that national signature victory over Oklahoma in which the, 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 the boomer sooner gets penalized in the game, which was awesome. Yeah. So it's a, it's an interesting debate. I wrote in, I don't know, maybe I, I should have phrased this better that like this, this team, when the dust is all settled and everything, history will still remember this team as, as winners. Oh, for that's sure. Kind of, that was kind of their defining characteristic. They won 14 games, never done that before. They won the Pac-12 championship against uh, what most people would agree was clearly the the second best team in the Pac-12 and maybe one of the five or so best teams in the country. And and they won a college football playoff game. I mean, that like their win over Texas is one of the most impressive postseason victories they've ever had. For sure. I mean, and one of the most <laughs> thrilling games and one of the best nights of my life, Christian. So it was a team. It was a team that knew how to win, and and you know they they were winners. They were not champions. Like only one team gets to be champion. But I I think when it's all said and done, people are going to look back on this season as um, one of their all time favorites. You know whether you're you've been going Husky games for sixty years or just started following them or you're a student now. Um, they're this was a legendary season. I think it really was. And you know it, if they'd blown every team out. You'd probably still say that, but I do think that it added just it added to it that they were so like kind of inconsistent and frustrating that way, where they let teams hang around and didn't really seize the moment. And um, ten consecutive wins by ten points or fewer is is pretty unbelievable. I mean, I, I'm comfortable saying you will never see another season like this. For sure, it was crazy what they were able to do. We have a we have a patron here. I've I've decided that uh, Ian McFarland is going to be known as our 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 original patron. And he chimed in. He sent us this is a bit of a time capsule message, a message in a bottle because he recorded it. The, the message came through to me from the Texas Medical Center. And my initial reaction uh, was that there had been some sort of complication for Ian in Houston. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, did he end up in the hospital after the national championship game? No, no, no. I think that's just the locale of his hotel. But here is the message that uh, question from our OP, the original patron, Ian McFarland. Good morning, guys. I am recording this Tuesday morning um, from Houston. I, I wanted to do it when, when the wounds were still fresh and my voice hadn't quite recovered. Um, rough night. <laughs> I, 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 I think by, by the time this, this airs on Thursday, people have read Christian's work. They will have uh, read some of the national opinions. So, um, I won't go into it too far about certain details of the game, but being there while attempting to watch a game seated directly behind Spencer Hawes, which 
he was great. His friends were great. His family was great. But attempting to see around Spencer is a challenge. Everyone should try at some point. Um, the uh, the vibes in the arena sometimes tell you something that you, you wouldn't see on TV. And um, it felt the exact opposite of the Texas game, where the Texas game, UW had won. They, they, they had won the game multiple times over. It was theirs. But a series of could be minor mistakes that Texas capitalized on, a couple of calls, a couple of bad breaks, and then, of course, the horrible break with, with DJ's injury, pardon me, um, kept Texas back in the game. And so sitting there, I, I found myself rooting for that. wasn't questioning play calls. I wasn't questioning execution. I was saying they need a couple breaks, and they never got them. A few calls went against them, in fact, and, and made it even tougher. But the better team won, unfortunately. Um, but my, my takeaway from the game is, is that I'm just kind of sad that the ride's over. I feel like that at the end of every season, but well, 2021, I did not feel like that, but <laughs> most seasons I feel like that, but this group has been the most fun university of Washington team of my lifetime. Maybe not the best, but the absolute most fun. And I hope by Thursday when this airs, we haven't seen the mass exodus, I, I fear. Um, I hope at least one or two of, of Grubb, McMillan, and Polk are not headed to the NFL, which every indication looks like all three are headed there. Um, but what a ride. I want to thank you both for fantastic coverage all year. The number of people I spoke to in New Orleans and Houston who rely on the two of you for the best information on Husky football out there. I, I lost count at some point and, and I was able to tell them that you're, you're also great people. So we appreciate everything you do. Been a blast working with you this whole season. And let's dive into the off season because I'm already pumped for next year. What is it? 234 days. Love you guys. Go dogs. Ian was way too nice to us. I think. I, I expected a little bit of a, a, a little bit of, of of him giving us a hard time, and instead he just complimented the hell out of us, Christian. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know how to handle that. You know, I, I, I obviously I I crave attention and positive affirmation, but when it comes, I just I don't know. It's 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 hard. I it's hard. I, I will say that I feel the same way about sort of being sad that it's done and and grateful that it happened. There was. One of the realities when you cover a team um, is that it gets really hard at the end of a year, especially like a good year. And you're, you're kind of tired and it's, it stretches you to, to pretty close to a breaking point, which I'm sure that you've, you've extended yourself a great deal being on the road for 13 straight days is, is an awful long time. At the end of the 2012 Seahawks season, the year that they lost to the Falcons in the final 30 seconds of that playoff game, Afterwards, I was out to dinner with Jerry Brewer, and there were a couple other reporters that were there. My wife was there, too. She traveled to Atlanta. And, and I really felt this just like, oh, I'm bummed. I'm, 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 I'm bummed because I'm not going to get to write about them anymore. It was a really fun team and watching them come together. And this is the time that I really feel like that as a fan. 
And, and I'm not sure if I've ever specifically felt that way before where it's just like, oh man, I don't, I don't get to watch that iteration of the team anymore. And it was really fun this year to watch. And there are so many different moments that I'm going to have crystallized and that I will say that the emotions that I had at the end of the Oregon regular season game and the end of the, the sugar bowl, those are as intense emotional feelings as I've had in my life. It was, it was wildly intense and I'm really grateful to be taken on the ride, but I do feel that sort of sense of like, Oh man, I'm not going to get to see that again. I'm not going to get to see the feeling. I'm not going to get to feel like I did when Michael Penix completed that 77 yard pass to Jalen Polk in the, early in the sugar bowl. And there was this sort of like, yeah, motherfuckers, that's exactly how Washington's offense rolls. I, I'm not going to get to feel that. And maybe it'll, it'll be different, but there was like a certain amount of like, man, these guys are ready for this. Yeah, I'm sad it's done. Yeah, it's um, you know, documenting it as a reporter. I feel like I've said a number of times about a number of different moments from this season that they were they were one of one. You know, you can, and yeah. again, it's subjective. You can parse over, was this the greatest game ever at Husky Stadium? Was this the most satisfying win in program history? Was this the biggest postseason victory in program history? Where do they rank all time? Like we were debating earlier. Um, the fact is, like, a, every season's unique. But the, what this team did this year will will never be done again. They could go 15-0 and or, I guess, 16-0 and um, in the 12-team playoff. And win a national championship, but it won't be like this year. I, I bet they won't do it winning 10 consecutive games by 10 points or fewer. <laughs> you know, I bet they won't do it with um, a win like they had against Oregon at home and a win like they had against Oregon in the conference championship game. And with their running back going for 256 yards at USC and the, the crazy thrilling finish against Texas in, in the sugar bowl and a last second field goal to, to win the apple cup. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe won't be in the apple cup at all after, after a few years, we'll see. Um, but I mean that that's, if there's any feeling on my end of like, Oh, I wish it, I wish it wasn't over. Frankly, it's, been a long year like i you know i'll i'll, co I'll cover whatever happens and i'm never going to complain about like a season being extended or or this or that but like you know they're just being very honest there is a part of me that's that was like ready to move into the next phase of of the the news cycle right you know ready to okay they're playing one more game we know it's done after that and and you know away we go um but they're yeah there's there's part of me that knows I'm never going to write about another team or season quite like this one. That doesn't mean that there won't be really, really interesting or fun or, or the opposite of that uninteresting or really hard to watch football, which can be fun to write about too, right? Like my job's a little different. My perspective's a little different than, than, than yours is on, on all those sorts of things. Um, but, but just knowing that like, yeah, like this, this journey, this ride that I documented and that people were following along for and that many people enjoyed reading about and were so engaged, um, knowing that, that that has come to an end and, and that, you know, it, it could, I would say it could be a while before we see anything like it. The honest truth is you'll never see anything 
quite right. like it. You'll never see anything just like it. Um, so just knowing that like there isn't another game to write about in that sort of, there isn't going to be another chapter in that sort of story of this season. Um, yeah, I, I, I can understand. I, I can see, I can draw a line from that to probably how you were feeling a little bit at the end of 2012. Yeah, I, I will say as you were talking, I came up with what I think my favorite my favorite moment of this season was. <laughs> it's at the end of the first regular season game against Oregon. And and I want to I want to be clear, like I was going nuts when it happened, but it wasn't until a few days later when I saw a picture. And and this is what is going to stick in my mind maybe the most from this season is when Roma Dunze caught that go ahead touchdown with what was it a minute 36? Is it a minute? However long, less than two minutes to go in the game against Oregon. And, and he turns and kind of poses toward the crowd with this, like now what? And there's a picture of Christian as the distilled professional I believe you're reaching. Are you reaching into your jacket? You're reaching into your pocket to remove. No, I've a, got my. I've got my phone out, and you're raising my... your phone to take a picture to document the moment. And what I, what I, what I imagine is what was happening about 18 rows because our seats are on in that corner on that side of the stadium. So it's probably I should look back. It's like 21 rows up, uh, in which. I don't know if everybody in the row fell down, but there was a start of a mosh pit situation. Like it was just pandemonium in the seat. And that, that contrast between the studiousness of, of Christian Capel of on Montlake.com, <laughs> the reckless abandon that was happening in the stands like that, that moment. And then the, the missed field goal, but that's probably my favorite moment of having having seen because I had already made sort of peace with the reality that Washington was perhaps going to lose that game when they'd been down and it came down to that fourth down where they were going to have to, you didn't know if Washington was even going to get the ball back. And then two plays later to have them throw that touchdown to Roma Dunze and then to see Christian there, the paragon of professionalism in a moment of wild abandon at the rest of, of Husky stadium. All in, all in one podcast. Some some eighteen rows and uh, little depart. You know, I there were there were a few people re- replying to a tweet of that photo. Of course, like, oh, look at the guy on his you know he's on his phone. He's not even watching the game, and um, which I of course wasn't true as I've explained. But I did laugh. There was one who's like, he's like he already knows what's about to happen. He's texting the baddie in accounting. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. <laughs> Unfortunately, I do my own accounting. Yeah. Um, well, so sort of. Ian mentioned Grub going to the NFL. Is that? Yeah. I hadn't seen anything real solid on that. I mean, I feel like if there's not a college head coaching job that comes open that he'd be a fit for, which it kind of seems like there hasn't been. And it's not like there can't be late cycle openings, but it doesn't seem like there's going to be. Um if he is just ready for the next thing, like, yeah, I could see an NFL team taking a shot on him as an OC. Um, Ian mentioned, and we should get out of the way. Like if you haven't seen Jalen Polk has declared, declared for the NFL draft as, as many expected Troy Fautanu, which I, 
I really didn't even have him like on the radar of someone to watch. He was so obviously gone, but he he also made it official um, on Wednesday morning. It's um, it's going to be some nervous times here for Husky fans over the next week or so. I think it would have been that way anyway. Jim Harbaugh's future is up in the air. There are several NFL jobs open. Kalen DeBoer's contract extension isn't done. Um, does Pete Carroll's ouster in Seattle um, add to your concern that Washington might not hold on to Kalen DeBoer? Do you, I mean, you, you obviously know that franchise extremely well, have spent a ton of time around them. Um, you follow the NFL uh, certainly a lot closer than I do. Do you see Kalen DeBoer as a fit at the next level? Do you see the Seahawks being interested in him in particular? I think that Kalen DeBoer could go to the NFL. I don't know if he's going to have the body of work that would make that happen right now. It's really unlikely that the Seahawks would be interested in him. But I also say that as someone who's really surprised that not that Pete Carroll's moving on, but that it's really clear that Seattle's the Seahawks franchise is the one that's deciding that. Um, I'm, I'm really surprised. And I listened to, before we started here, I listened to the start of Pete's press conference in which he announced it because it's, it's always really hard to understand the exact machinations of how an exit works when you have multiple years of contracts left how how it's arranged this was described as an amicable agreement um i it certainly looked from the announcement and from what pete said after the game and what he said the next day that he was hoping and planning to return as head coach which would mean that it was the franchise that made the decision listening to his press conference it's very clear that it was this was a decision that he was he might have ultimately agreed with or said he agreed with, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted to come back and coach again, and he fought to do that. And he's not, and now John Schneider is going to choose the next coach. It's really hard for me to imagine John Schneider deciding that he's going to hire a a guy who hasn't who hasn't been in the NFL before. John's background is entirely in the NFL, and throughout his time in Seattle, He's made more decisions than people give him credit for. They tend to see him as Pete's deputy, and that's not how that relationship works at all. John's got his own network of contacts and people that he's close with, and guys like Mike McCarthy is somebody that he's he's been very tight with over the years, who's now the, the Cowboys head coach. He obviously has history with Dan Quinn. I don't know who John John will choose. It would really surprise me if it ended up, if, if Kalen DeBoer ended up being a serious candidate for that job. I'll say this generally speaking, Kalen DeBoer strikes me as a college guy, as a as a college head coach, similar to the way Chris Peterson did. I could not have ever seen Chris Peterson coaching in the NFL. So much of his his why, so to speak, his purpose was developing young people into responsible adults. And he I think he saw football as the vehicle for that and that's not what the NFL is. The NFL is a business. The NFL is an entertainment product. Um, you you better love football more than anything else if you're going to be a head coach in the NFL. That piece of it, Kalen DeBoer does fit. Mm-hmm. 
I think he cares deeply about developing young men into uh, successful, responsible adults. I think he cares deeply about, you know, the traditions and the passion and everything that comes along with college athletics that you don't get in the pros, but he's also extremely competitive and really, really, really into the game and the strategy and X's and O's. And I could see someone with his offensive background who runs a, a pro style spread, you know, they, they throw the ball a lot and they throw for a lot of yards, but Ryan Grubb got pretty passionate um, at media day about that. This it's not the air raid. Mm-hmm. So um, I, I could see an NFL team being intrigued by DeBoer that way. And also just generally believing him to be a very strong leader with a even keel mentality um he's i think able he has a kind of personality where he's able to get along with just about anybody he's i don't think he's the kind of raw raw college coach that would have a bunch of pros looking at him like oh god you went out and hired this guy from like really come on you know i make 10 million dollars a year i've been doing this for eight years and and now now joe college is going to come in and coach me like he doesn't he even though he strikes me as a college coach he doesn't really cut that figure. So I think he has a pretty versatile um, set of leadership skills that would translate well to the NFL. If we woke up someday and saw, you know, so such and such NFL team has agreed to terms with Kalen DeBoer, like it wouldn't be the most surprising thing to me. I don't know that it's now. Um, yeah. He's He's bounced around a lot. His, he's asked his family to move a lot. Um, now, people who want to throw out the, well, his daughter's starting at UW next year playing softball, coaching the Seahawks would be the one job move where that wouldn't be a factor, right? You're not just right on campus, but what difference does it make? You're very, very close. You could Whatever games you could watch her play in as the head coach at UW, you could watch her play in as the, the coach of the Seahawks, ostensibly, you know, right? There might be a because of Saturday versus Sunday, maybe there's a, a, a difference. There's something, you know, who knows, but um, it just, it feels like this is not the off season for him to go, but the longer, the more time that passes without him getting a contract extension done, you do wonder if, if not him specifically, then maybe Jimmy Sexton, his agent, um, you know, is is there still an urge to explore and just see what's maybe out there for Kalen DeBoer this cycle before they quote unquote settle, not to put it in those terms, but sign on the dotted line with the school he's already at. So I I don't necessarily see him like being in the mindset of, oh, I got to cash in right now. My stock's never going to be higher. That's how agents think. I don't know that that's how Kalen DeBoer would approach his future, but hey, if if an NFL team um, decides you're the guy and really puts the pressure on and, and presents you with a vision for what it could be like coaching at the very highest level, um, I think he's too competitive to to just wave that off, you know? Yeah. My fear, and I'm I'm not quite sure when to say that that when did I have this this sort of when did it become my fear for the past month or month and a half has been that Michigan will that that job will open up and would come after Kalen DeBoer and that that might be an end of the rainbow type job 
for Kalen DeBoer. Um, I think Harbaugh's gone. Um, I sure think seems I, that way. I'm I'm I was even more. I w- I'm even more sort of confident or think that's more likely after they won the national title. Um, I, I've heard a lot of people expect him in in L.A. with the Chargers. But now I've also heard some people that think that the, the move in Tennessee with Mike Vrabel was made with the idea of going and getting Harbaugh. So we'll see. Certainly, Sharon Moore is set up to be the the next head coach there, given what happened during Harbaugh's suspension. I wouldn't blame Kalen DeBoer if Michigan, if Michigan opened as a job and he decided that's in, in my mind, it's clearly a job with a lot more resources. It's, I don't know how he feels about, about Michigan in general, or even the Midwest specifically, but that's a landmark program in the part of the country where he's from. That's always been my fear because I think if Michigan decided they really wanted to hire Kalen DeBoer and he wanted to go, that Washington would have a hard time being able to Washington. Washington is hoping he's going to stay. I mean, that's, that's really the position they're in. And I, I do think he'll, he'll end up staying there, but this is, it's not going to be because he lacks options or because Washington is able to throw more money at him or more opportunity at him than other places. There's reality of the situation is that he, he could, if he wanted to go to the, the, to leverage this moment for as much as he could, he could probably get more from somewhere else. I just, I, I don't think he's going to move right now, but I'm worried about it. Yeah. I, I think that that is a, that's a fair sentiment. I mean, what you just said, like if I had to put money on it, I'm probably betting on him still being at Washington in 2024. I don't think this is a worry free time for yeah. Washington fans that way. Um, but you'd rather have it that way than the other way. For sure. There's, you know, yes, it's a, it's a unique situation where you win seven games, seven games, seven games, and then your head coach leaves for USC. Um, usually if your head coach is leaving for a job like USC or, or people are connecting him to Michigan, um, it's cause you're in the place that Washington's in now, which is having won a ton. And, you know, if, if, if Kalen DeBoer leaves this cycle for whatever job, it won't be because Washington wouldn't pay him, you know, it, it won't be because, oh, well, Washington just didn't, they didn't make it enough of a priority to lock up their head coach. They screwed up. It'll get thrown out there that he's, you know, 44th in FBS and in salary or whatever. For sure. Um, If he were interested, like if his priority were getting a deal done, it would be done. Um, So that like it, it does, it's enough to make you wonder, was it really just about getting the season over? Was his agent advising him? Wait, now, hold on. Let's just see. Don't lock yourself into anything yet. Um, We'll see. You know, we'll find out pretty soon. If it's not done by gosh, the end of next week. Um, Mm -hmm. you got to kind of start to wonder what, what they're waiting for a lot. There's a couple of really high profile openings right now, and there could be another one that comes open and he's got every right to be able to explore and look at, at at what's out there. And he is certainly, Oh my goodness. Nick Saban is retiring. Now that doesn't surprise me. That's so that's another one. (laughs) That's that's, that's another that one I've I've been thinking about. Um, if that were to happen, um, that doesn't yeah. surprise me at all. And and the reason is because 
you're having a moment where a lot of coaches you've, and this, this has happened more in, in basketball than in football, but you've had a lot of coaches who are looking at the environment of what it looks like going forward with NIL and, and a sort of increasingly professionalized group of college players and saying like, I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not making that jump. I'm not making that, that leap. I'm not going to change and do the sort of things that you have to do to compete in that. Um, the Alabama job is not one that, that worries me, honestly. And it's kind of like the Texas A&M job. Those are so demanding. And I don't think you want to be the guy that replaces Nick Saban at Alabama. And I don't think you want to be the guy that deals with the ex- enlarged expectations that people at Texas A&M have. Um, you might be able to command the most money in the short term, but that is that is not the long-term play to be making. Because if you go to Alabama, they're complaining because Nick Saban hasn't won a national championship in three years. Like that's that's the general sentiment down there is that he hasn't won it in three years. Jim Harbaugh just won it at a school where they had not won in it a share of a national championship 28 years ago. The expectations down there are wild. Yeah, I, I have a similar thought on do you want to be the guy who replaces Nick Saban? Um, but Alabama's not been open a ton um in the last couple decades, and it's one of the few schools in the top tier. It's one of the uh the cool kid club jobs. So if you're trying to win at the highest level with the most resources and access to the best talent, I don't think Alabama is the best job in the country. I think Georgia is. And I think there's a couple other programs you'd put ahead of Alabama when Nick Saban is not Alabama's head coach, but it's certainly in that it's certainly in the tier. It's certainly in that crew. So um listen that Kalen DeBoer is twenty five and three in two mm-hmm. seasons coaching at the power five level just took Washington to the national championship game two seasons after they were four and eight, like he's going to be on every list. So that's just add that one to the, uh, to the list of worries. That's, you know, it, the, again, maybe Washington's fortunate that, that, that Alabama and, and presumably Michigan, though it hasn't happened yet are coming open in the same off season coming off of a national title, uh, appearance because it's too soon and 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 that will be a factor in him staying um but it's it's also going to make for some hand-wringing until that contract gets done or until those jobs are filled yeah it's hard for me to foresee and what i would say is that if if kaylin DeBoer's priority is to make the most sort of the most money or to get the biggest high-profile program, he could choose to leave Washington. And no one would say, like, oh, I don't understand the rationale. Like, even if he took the Texas A&M job, like that's a, it's, they might be hamstrung because of how much they're playing Jimbo Fisher. But Kalen DeBoer is of a caliber and pedigree of a coach that I do think that the decision he's not going to feel rushed into making the, I've got to get out now. I've got to, I've got to, this is, I'm never going to have more bargaining power than I have right now as a head coach, because he's by all indications, (laughs) the dude has won everywhere. And I can't imagine there being some sort of expiration date on the expense, the success that he's going to experience. 
if he chooses to go to Alabama, I, I mean, hey, that's all the power to him. I just that is not if you got if you if you were looking at entering a period where you could pick and choose which jobs you end up taking, going to Alabama to replace Nick Saban is not one of the ones that I would I would I would sign up for just because I think you're going to be compared to such an incredibly high standard. Seeing a number of people um throw out Dan Lanning as a potential top target for Alabama. I don't In fact, uh, Brett McMurphy re- reports that he is expected to be the top target for them. I do not want Oregon to, I do not want a situation where Oregon might hire a coach that's capable of beating Washington. <laughs> well, he might be still. <laughs> we, he's 0-3. He can't beat Washington. No, I'm just kidding. He came awfully close three times. Yeah, yeah, it hasn't it hasn't gotten it done. Uh, that was a, re, a a recycled joke on my part. <laughs> do you think it's more likely? Day. Do you do you think that Dan Lanning's a better candidate than Kalen DeBoer? Um, he certainly knows that part of the country and that conference. And that's so weird, though. Like, Isn't that weird? It if is. <laughs> I'm pretty pretty sure college football is. That's so dumb. That's the dumbest part of college football. I'm pretty sure if you're the coach of Alabama, you can meet anybody you need to meet. I'm pretty sure they're not going to be like, oh, I've never heard of this guy before. Who is he? Like the idea that like all of a sudden, like, oh, he's got this network of coaches. Like you're going to have the same network of coaches if you're the coach of Alabama because of how many people are going to want to go there. The, The recruiting piece, I think Lanning has like a more proven track record than DeBoer does. You know, one of the the few remaining questions on Kalen DeBoer is like, are they going to recruit at a level to consistently compete for national championships? Mm-hmm. Are they capable of doing that at Washington? Um, and is Kalen DeBoer capable of doing that? It's his, it's his second year in a power five school, right? We just don't know yet. Dan Lanning has done it at Oregon. I mean, it's just going off rankings at this point because he's also only in his second year They've brought in some dudes. They brought in some five stars. They've beaten some top programs for some recruits that everybody wanted. Um, and he did that at Georgia. I mean, he helped Georgia do that too as their defensive coordinator. He, like, I do think, referring to the SEC specifically, I do think there is a way of doing business and constructing roster and winning football games that, that you, it's a benefit to grasp it. Now, if I'm advising Alabama on its hire and they say, well, what about Kalen DeBoer? I'm not saying, mm, no, don't do that. He can't win here. Like I think Kalen DeBoer can win anywhere. Frankly, I, I think that's, I think this is who he is. I think he's a really good head coach. Um, yes. So why it wouldn't surprise me for any of these schools to come after him. So um, I look going to be some nervous times, you know, till that, the, the, the contract extension. And by the way, like I've, I feel like it's always worth noting. Um, contract extension doesn't guarantee a coach isn't going to leave either. You know, there's a hundred percent figure true. for a reason. These teams got a ton of money, but Kalen DeBoer signing that contract extension now or close to now, or while these jobs are still open would be a signal that he's not leaving. So yes, this year until that's done um, is look, it's just going to be nervous times for Husky fans or um, until Dan Lanning leaves Oregon for Alabama. That would assuage some of it. <laughs> uh, I don't doubt what you're saying is correct. Like, I know that that's how colleges think. I also 
want to say that I want to encourage colleges to continue to think that way and that there's something different about coaching football in the SEC that someone who's not from and or familiar with that part of the country can't really understand or master. I also think that that's one of the dumbest things that football people and I'll include NFL teams in this as well. When they start to say, oh, that person can't do that here because they're not used to it. They're not familiar with it. They don't have the background here. I think it is such a silly, silly sort of thought process that it, teams limit themselves by. Teams and schools limit themselves by. It's like, it's just different down here. Freaking Kalen DeBoer, like the same rationale that people had when he left an NAIA level of like, well, I don't know if he could do it. He's a really freaking good head coach. He's an incredible head coach. And anything that he needs to figure out, he's probably going to be able to figure out while he's on the job. I just hope that you don't pay attention to that or really believe it because that increases the likelihood that he'll stay at my school. Hey, I don't disagree. Um, coaches, you know, coaching is coaching. Winners are winners. I think it's the, you know, the fact that DeBoer and others now, Lance Leopold too, have made the jump from the, the lower levels to the higher levels and won at every stop along the way, like I think proves that um, if you can coach, you can coach. If you can win, you can win and, and put the resources and the infrastructure around somebody who can win and they'll probably keep winning. So, um, man, that, you know, I wasn't, wasn't expecting to, uh, to speculate about Alabama when we sat down to record. But what a day. What a day. Pete Carroll and Nick Saban out on the same day. Christian, it's been really fun to host the podcast with you over the course of the season. Um, I'm really I'm really excited for what you built at onmontlake.com and look forward to moving moving into the off season and whatever that brings us. Yes, definitely. I uh this is continues to be one of my favorite things to do every week. Um when I was still at the athletic, it was far and away. Number one was getting a little burnt out, was not loving um, the direction that that job had gone, was kind of starting to wonder what was next. But we had this and this was our thing. And this was kind of what I really looked forward to doing and still do. And um, it's just been super fun to sit down on Wednesdays all year and talk about uh, the, uh, the the increasingly wild chapters of what Washington season <laughs> became so good to see you in new orleans uh that was awesome ian as well we'll talk to you next week i think we can keep the we'll find something to find something to talk about between now and then there might be a might be a thing or two so um hopefully you're in, you're enjoying the the ride that we're still on art art you know we just keep writing chapters danny our story's not over <laughs> that's exactly right the journey continues talk to you next week <laughs> we'll talk to you